Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously interesting books. This week we're focusing on one of the 19th century's most successful and influential writers, Victor Hugo. By the time of his death in 1885, Hugo was undoubtedly the most famous French writer in the world, a literary colossus who'd made his mark in the theatre, and as a novelist and poet, and as a statesman. An estimated two million people lined the streets of Paris for his funeral. Hugo wrote Les Miserables on Guernsey during his long political exile from France's Second Empire. That sprawling book has been called the novel of the century. It was an international bestseller and exemplified Hugo's belief in literature's power to bring about change. Even today, its power to inspire new incarnations shows no sign of abating. Witness a recent BBC dramatisation, for example. Some, though, find Hugo too much. When the poet Charles Baudelaire described Hugo's natural domain as the excessive, the immense, he meant it positively. But it's possible to feel overwhelmed by that excess and immensity. Hugo's complete works run to 45 volumes, after all. He's torrential. In my guest today, Hugo has found an eloquent new champion. Bradley Stevens of Bristol University has just brought out a new biography of Hugo, the first in English in over 20 years. He writes, Victor Hugo's life can be read like an epic novel. Born in 1802 and dying in 1885, he bore witness to the aspirations and anxieties of a century that continues to speak to our own. My biography of Hugo offers a concise but full account of his artistry and activism in the light of what was, by any measure, a momentous life. A figure comes to light that is more modest and apprehensive than a victorious and self-obsessed demigod. Returning to Baudelaire's 1861 essay, he said there that Germany had had Goethe and England Shakespeare and Byron, so perhaps France was legitimately due Victor Hugo. When I met Bradley in Bristol recently, I wanted to know what he thought about Hugo's status in France today. Four years ago, in 2015, there were two national surveys conducted. One, if I remember correctly, by Le Figaro, which is one of the main um, broadsheets in France, and one by Le Magazine Littéraire, which is one of the main literary periodicals. And the long and the short of it was that uh, there was a national survey taken of readers asking who is France's greatest writer, i.e. Who, which writer best embodies Frenchness, for want of a better description, and which French writer from history best embodies that. And Hugo topped the list by a considerable margin. So Hugo remains this icon, really, of French cultural prestige. But of course, that cultural prestige isn't simply literary. There's also that sense of civic duty. So in the run-up to the presidential elections in 2017, Emmanuel Macron, along with a number of the other candidates, are asked who is their their French national hero from history. And Macron doesn't hesitate. It's Hugo. He claims he, and of course it makes sense for Macron as a centrist figure who's looking for consensus, that Hugo becomes a name that he cites because Hugo, again, is seen as 
a figure that can unite France's disparate and diverse elements. And Macron himself models his presidency, well, indeed, his campaign, and then later his presidency on this centrist ideal, where he talks about Hugo as, if I remember correctly, wanting um, or inspiring us to rise above ourselves, to find the best in ourselves. So it's no surprise that today he remains that figure. Of course, that in itself is a problematic reputation, because the danger, as with all monuments, is that not only not only does the shadow that they cast really give us a rather distorted or exaggerated image of the person's actual form, but also that they can seem rather remote upon that pedestal. They can seem rather detached from us. And that really wasn't Hugo's idea of posterity at all. And he's quite critical of this in a lot of his work. So it's really about acknowledging that that, that reputation and that influence, but at the same time trying to contextualise it and ensure that it doesn't become reified. And the danger, certainly in France, we saw this with the presidential elections, is that you can have Marine Le Pen as the leader of the far right citing Hugo, and you can have Jean-Luc Mélenchon as the leader of the far left citing Hugo, everyone claiming him for their own. Of course, no one really reading him or thinking about what he's saying in detail. Take us back, Bradley, to 1802, before Hugo was this towering figure, this colossus of of French and indeed world literature. What kind of world, what kind of family was the, was the child born into? So Hugo is the youngest of three children, born to a military father. His father, Leopold, was part of the Napoleonic army, and his mother, Sophie, Much has been made of his mother and father's opposing political views, but this can be overstated in part because of Hugo's own tendency to like rather neat antitheses that he can then collapse into... uh, Homo duplex. Homo duplex, exactly, sort of bring things together into um, not necessarily a harmonious whole, but certainly an interconnected whole. So his mother and father, the reality was both of them were influenced by enlightenment ideals of reason, moving away from the superstitions of the past. But they both had rather different outlooks on where that ideology was going to take France and where indeed it should take France in the 19th century. So Leopold, being a man of the Napoleonic army, very much believed in meritocracy and a move away from the Ancien Régime. Sophie feared for France's future based on the violence of the revolution, what had happened, what had actually led up to Napoleon's coup d'etat, the reason they needed a Napoleon in the first place. And she was a royalist. She wanted a return to the royalist traditions. Of course, what Hugo leaves out in this portrait of his parents is that there was animosity between the two of them on a personal level. This wasn't like any marriage. It's not simply about political viewpoints and ideologies. Fundamentally, the two were growing increasingly estranged. And indeed, over time, the two find different lovers. And this creates a great deal of animosity in the family, which Hugo and his elder brothers are subject to. So when he's growing up initially, he joins his father and his brothers on a number of different military postings, first in the south of France and then in the Mediterranean, before his mother takes the three of them back to Paris. And then later on, uh, through his uh, later childhood, he accompanies the family on a trip to Italy and then through Spain, all of which is very formative and broadening his horizons, but all of which likewise exposes him not only to the the reality of the Napoleonic Wars, but also inevitably to the rather fragile nature of his parents' marriage. So from a very early age, he's aware not only of a continent that's divided and fractious, but also of a family life that is um, characterised by contrast and later on conflict. And was he something of an autodidact? He didn't pursue a, a university career for very long was he I mean was he simply one of those figures who absorb influences and read voraciously and and their mind is sort of self-formed 
He was very fortunate because his mother from an early age encouraged him and his middle brother Eugène to read widely. So she would frequent the cabinet de lecture, which were these public reading rooms that were close by, and ensure that her sons, both her sons' imaginations were given full nourishment. At the same time, uh, she oversees his education and ensures that he has an up-to-date education, one that's not governed by superstition or the clergy. So it's open-minded, based again on those enlightenment principles that are of such value to to many members of, the, of, of this generation. And his godfather, General Laori, who evidence suggests was his mother's lover, who she hides at the bottom of the garden at one point, he spends time with Victor reading through many of the classics and taking him through uh, many of these texts and explaining them to the ideas of republicanism and freedom from ancient Rome and ancient Greece, all of which has an impact. So by the time he gets into his teenage years, because of this, this fantastic interest he has in writing and the way he's trying to at once master the rules of, of verse and at the same time then think about how he might experiment, that, yeah, he hits the ground running very, very early indeed. We're in the, I guess, the 1820s by the time he's, he's publishing his first work. So what did a literary career in that period mean? So for him at that point, there were two things. There's the royal pension, so an income, as it were, from the crown. And there is the glory, the reputation that comes from it. For Hugo, an awareness of the two was underpinned by his his own desire for to or to fulfil the again this, this role of the writer. You know why why should writers be bathed in glory? Why should they receive support from the crown or the state? Well, because they fulfil a vital civic function, especially in the post revolutionary era, because we're at a point where the authority of the clergy and to an extent the crown has been questioned. Even though we've had the restoration of the monarchy after the fall of Napoleon, because the floodgates of the revolution can't be closed, not least because we've had the American Revolution as well, so these ideals are out there. And we see these poets and writers step into the power vacuum created by the erosion of the church's authority under the revolution and its iconoclastic streak. So for Hugo, he was making a career. And this was also important um, for his personal life because he knew that his childhood sweetheart, Adele, that her family would not approve of a marriage unless he was able to guarantee a stable income. So it was a pragmatic side to him. This wasn't simply about him proving himself as a writer and garnering the attention of the French reading public and the crown. It was also about him ensuring that he could satisfy the desires of his future in-laws and to a lesser extent that of his own father. Of course, no young poet needs more motivation than two father figures almost daring him to prove himself. There was a pragmatic side to him where he could see that writing was a career. Of course, in a more general sense, it was his vocation, it was a calling, but he wasn't blind to the the simple reality of having to put food on the table and pay the bills. And in doing that, having one eye on a theatre was clearly quite a pragmatic choice. Yes. So he was fascinated by the theatre from an early age, his travels to Spain, where he uh, recalls um, and reminisces about seeing various productions that really enlivened his imagination. He would write various productions with um, his brother, Eugène. They would play around with puppet shows as well. And he knew that the theatre was an ideal form or an ideal uh, space, really, in which to communicate to a broad audience 
and he theorises this as he goes through his career, of course, thinking about the importance of the stage to unite different audiences in the way that the French Republic or the France as a country needed to unite its different elements. He felt that the theatre shouldn't simply be about having highbrow or popular. It shouldn't be about simply the old classical genres and the new popular genres of melodrama or vaudeville, that you could bring these things together in a new hybrid form, which was really the, the ethos of, of uh, romantic aesthetics, in order to have audiences come together and to share these different experiences all at once. I was trying to, th- trying to think of another writer after Hugo who had such success as a poet and such a long career as a poet and as a novelist, you know, writing the novel of the century perhaps, and as a dramatist and as a you know, pamphleteer, journalist, and I couldn't think of anybody. No. Um, but in that multifariousness, again, going back to the Baudelaire essay that I, w- that I was reading, Baudelaire says it, it is one and it is compact, it's multiform, and yet it is one. Now, is that Baudelaire just turning a nice phrase or do, do, you, do you see something that holds all these very disparate elements together in Hugo's long career? No, I think Baudelaire is right that Hugo himself describes all of his work as one immense ocean. So something that's not static, it's not an object, but in the way that Baudelaire was describing, that there is a unity to it. So there's variety, there's constant change, unfathomable depths, shifting surfaces, changing temperatures, all of these different shifts and transitions. But they're all united. Um, They have a similar composition as a similar elemental force. So Baudelaire is, is very perceptive, I think, and he's one of Hugo's most perceptive readers in this respect. He was a jack of all trades in so many ways. He's this writer, and a writer who masters the stage, poetic verse, and the emerging form of the novel in the 19th century, as well as a public voice, as well as someone who's, vote, who's elected to public office. He's made a peer of the realm and then elected to both houses of the French parliament as well as a graphic artist. Um, It's mind-boggling, and yet there is definitely this unity to it all, which is what Hugo would call the romantic imagination, the ability of the voyant or the seer to use this faculty of the imagination, which, of course, Baudelaire described as the, the queen of the faculties, in order to both look at this world and describe it, but at the same time look beyond it to what it could become one day. I wanted to come on to that because we've sort of, we've we've mentioned things like his opposition to to tyranny and oppression and capital punishment and we know that he campaigned on behalf of the poor from Les Miserables but I was I am um, I opened Gide's anthology of French poetry this morning and he selects about 60 pages of of Hugo in that and I came to the line mes yeux plongeaient plus loin que le monde réel and I thought my 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 eyes plunged further than the real world and I thought that is a really Hugolian line there's something there's something kind of that sort of encapsulates something which is very different from the sort of socially engaged political campaigner. So are those the two sides, the, 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 the homo duplex that, that you touched upon there, the, the, the sort of seer who looks beyond his time as well as, as being very much engaged within it? Yes, he, I mean, he talks about this early on in his career, um, not least in the 1820s and the 1830s, the idea that beneath the real world lies an ideal world. So there's the social so social materiality, the material world around us, that world of things and time and life and death. And then there's the spiritual, 
which is deeply embedded in all of that and yet greater than it. So there's this finite life we all live and this finite world we're all in with finite resources. And then there's this infinite world that we're all part of, an infinitely creative universe, which for Hugo is God. God not personified, but God is this divine, immeasurable force that is the wellspring of all creation. It's the beginning, the middle and the end. And for Hugo, the true seer, the truly great artist or truly great thinker, it doesn't have to do, you know, greatness isn't simply about art. Greatness is about any public forum where you speak out, where you step out into that public eye. That truly great figure has to be someone who can combine both forms of vision. So I talk about it in, in other academic work as, as sight and insight, thinking about one of the characters um, in one of his later novels, L'Homme The Man Who Laughed, A Blind Girl, where he makes this distinction between um, vision and vue. So the notion of sight and insight, and you have to combine the two because if you're too root, if you're too sharply focused on the real and the immediate and the here and now, and everything that can be rationalised and evidenced and taken hold of, then you lose sight of that bigger picture. You lose the spiritual depth that's necessary for our imagination and for our emotion. At the same time, if you're too focused on fantasy and possibility and what this all could mean, then you lose sight of the real world. And he draws this analogy with the idea of a cockchafer, so a beetle flying through a field in springtime, idly taking in this this wondrous um, springtime weather. And that because this, this animal, this creature is paying no attention to what's going on around, it suddenly gets devoured by a predator and you know, torn apart. And he goes saying, you know, the dreamer has to be stronger than the dream. Il faut que le songeur soit plus fort que le, que le songe. So you have this awareness on his part that the, the, the truly great mind, the, the, the genius for want of a better word, has to be able to combine sight and insight in order to have this, this far seeing, but nonetheless perceptive eye for detail and eye for truth and, and you know, the, the, the meaning of, of, of different experiences. Now, is there a danger, and this is where I begin to have a bit of a problem with Hugo, I have to confess, that it's quite easy to tip over from being the seer, the vates, the, the magus, into bombast, and what, what can seem like rather empty rhetoric is, is, is perhaps too strong a criticism, but there's, there is a danger, isn't there, in, in assuming that role for yourself? Mm. There is a huge danger, not least when you write as much as he did. Um, and you can talk to any undergraduate or graduate student of mine who's had to read Les Miserables and they will tell you there are certain digressions in that novel that they just find too indigestible. There are without doubt moments in Hugo's career where he does veer so close, if not directly into bombast. And this is one of the big criticisms that's been made about him over the years, that he is this bombastic domineering, idealistic figure who had no real political programme, who had no real solid solutions for change, and who favoured the power or witchcraft of words over the, you know, the graft of hard social activism. That cliche doesn't ring true as far as I'm concerned, but I think certainly when it comes to your question around bombast, around exaggeration, that's there in his work. And he himself is aware of it too. Which is why you get this wild inconsistency in tone at points. I think with Hugo, everything has to be taken within context. The danger is, because there's so much to read and deal with, that we can be very selective in what we pluck out. So readers, and not least critics, can be magpies, and they can take what they want from his work. And unfortunately, you have to have some greater understanding of a whole, I think, with him, to appreciate those moments and to be able to contextualise them and say, well, is he really 
losing the plot at this point? Or is it, in fact, one of those moments where he's allowing his imagination to unwild and being very open about that moment of liberation? A moment that he would always fret over because of his middle brother Eugène's mental breakdown, his mental illness. Hugo was haunted by the possibility that with a great imagination, with that fervent romantic vigour, that you could easily tip over into madness, not just exaggeration, but also a complete lack of proportion and restraint. So this is, this is one of the mechanisms I think that he uses to really rein himself in where necessary. My first encounter with Hugo was when I was probably about 16 and it was in a French school anthology of verse and it was Demain de l'Aube, a, a poem, a short lyric poem about his daughter, Leopoldine, who drowned at the age of 20 in the Seine. She'd just got married. And so my view of Hugo was sort of shaped by, by that to quite an extent, the sort of personal tragedy, the intimacy of that, the lyricism of it. And there, is, there are other Hugos, as you've been suggesting, and one of them is, is the poet of intimacy, isn't it? He, but towards the end of his life, he writes a series of poems about the art of being a grandfather. So can, what can you say about that side of Hugo? I guess sometimes that can pitch into sentimentality, but, but it certainly shows that he's, he's got more, than, more than, than the bombastic or the social campaigner in his, in his armoury. Well, I think the intimacy that Hugo exhibits as a poet is integral to his ability to connect with different audiences because we see it in Les Miserables, we see it in his great stories, we see it on stage that his capacity for human emotion and for pathos is is one of his greatest selling points and sentimentality he doesn't see as a bad thing he doesn't see this as something dirty a poet should be introspective and should fathom those different emotions and even when it's as painful as confronting the grief that he felt at the loss of his daughter and it's that ability to work with both the intimate on the one hand and then the immense and the, the infinite on the other that is really his calling card as an artist because it allows him to to take things close up, to look at the minutiae of the human heart and then at the same time to step right back and look at the cosmos entire. So you get these wild variations between those two poles, all of which have to be taken, um, well, both of which and everything in between has to be understood as part of this whole cosmic creation that he, that he identifies as the divine. I think when he writes The Art of Being a Grandfather, in, or when he publishes The Art of Being a Grandfather in 1877, those who haven't read it might think that it's some guide to how to be a good grandfather, I how to, you know, how to be an authoritative, wise, elder figure. And actually in that collection, which itself can be prone to some moments of idealism, what you get is, a, is an, an elderly man saying, and I'm paraphrasing him in here, don't put me on the pedestal of the good Lord. I am not some living God. I'm still the rebellious young romantic. I would sooner be helping my granddaughter steal jam from the parlour and then take the flack from her parents than I would be fulfilling this role of some wise, all-knowing seer. His understanding of the seer of the prophet was never someone who had all the answers, but someone who knew how to articulate the questions and to enable different groups, different peoples to ask those questions and to forge their own paths forward. So even when he's writing something about being a grandfather and he's looking at those intimate spaces with his grandchildren, he's looking for the wider meaning of that. He's using himself as a poet and his own emotional experiences and his family as a means of thinking through these these broader questions of identity that I think affect a lot of us. 
The, the other aspect of his work that I found myself beguiled by is the graphic work. Mm. And there, it seems to be of a piece with the poetry. You've got this really intense chiaroscuro, you've got semi-abstraction, you've got bold lines, you've got sort of gaping darknesses and then flashes of light. That came as a complete revelation. I think it was probably in my 20s when I first saw his graphic work. And it's very bold and it's very modern, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Van Gogh, when he saw these works, so they were first exhibited in public three years after Hugo had died. He was very private about his graphic works. He would only show them to close friends and family. He would use them as, say, greetings cards or calling cards. So these weren't things he wanted to exhibit. And we've speculated in the past as to the reasons why he wouldn't want to put these things out there. I mean, this isn't a man known for his lack of self-belief. So where's the egotist, as it were? And of course, this helps us nuance this this cliche of, of an egotistical artist, because it's, it's more about self-belief than it is about conceit. And he was friends with Delacroix, so there was this awareness that actually the, the, the visual realm, the graphic realm, was one that was already claimed, as it were. But he was very private about these works. And when they are finally exhibited to the to the greater public, um, they're a revelation. So Van Gogh describes them as astonishing things. I mean, he's completely taken aback. And you can see the way they anticipate many techniques of surrealism and modernism. So his ink blots, which make us think of the Rorschach ink block tests, the use of pochoir and stenciling, the heavy use of contrast, the dreamy fluid nature of the images, the perishable nature of many of the materials. Very few of his compositions were created on large scales, and they are entirely fascinating. Um, they're very reflective of his of his work, of his of his literary writing and and his techniques. But they show really how experimental he was, how imaginative he was, and in some respects how ahead of his time he was, which is what makes him such a leading figure in, in French literary history because he was able to at once look backwards and think about the great traditions of antiquity and of course the romantic inheritance he received from people like Chateaubriand and Madame de Stael and yet also look forwards which when we think about Baudelaire I mean that's, that's the point of the 19th century modern artist that they are someone who is looking for the new able to develop the new but not simply jettisoning the past. After He'd spent the best part of two decades in exile in the Channel Islands as persona non grata under the Second Empire. He comes back to Paris at the time of the Franco-Prussian War, towards the, well, it's in the sort of last chapter, I guess, of his life, is beginning. What was his status then in France? What kind of national, because he clearly was a national figure, what did he represent to French people and, and why by that stage? By 1870, Hugo represents the Republican resistance. Before he goes into exile, we see this definitive shift on his part to the centre-left, um, where he fully identifies with republicanism, believes in the need for France to have a fully republican system in place. And with that, the usual tenets that we associate politically with republicanism, so social welfare, affordable housing, and education not controlled by the church. When he goes into exile, of course, in 1851, after Louis Napoleon's coup d'etat, he is vocal in his criticisms. I mean, he's the man who, before he went into exile, famously stood in the French Parliament and and said, you know, after suffering Napoleon the Great, must we now suffer Napoleon the Small, Napoleon le Petit, which is a name that sticks to Louis Napoleon even when he becomes uh, when he uh, becomes emperor in 1852. So Hugo is this voice of resistance, which we see in his early poetry collection Châtiment, uh, which is published in 1853, where he lambasts and flogs the Second Empire and all its conspirators, including the Vatican. 
And then he publishes things like Contemplation, and then later Les Miserables. So he still maintains that social and political edge, and at the same time embodies the figure of the poet as not just socially minded, but spiritually and philosophically minded. So by the time he comes back to France, he's known worldwide, not least thanks to the success of, of Les Miserables. He's corresponded with Garibaldi. He's spoken out against uh, the abolition of slavery in America. He's spoken out in favour of the Irish Fenians. All sorts of different political movements and situations that he's intervened in and been uh, called upon to intervene in. So when he comes back to France, he is this national hero. And of course, he's a throwback to another time, because at this point, he's coming up to 70. Life expectancy in the 19th century isn't what it is today, so he's this living legend. And there's a famous caricature during the siege of Paris where a young boy wants to give Hugo um, what we now call a bulletproof vest, so some form of protection. And an old woman says to him, imbecile, he doesn't need that, that's Victor Hugo, he's immortal, because he is one of the so-called immortals of the, the French Academy, the Académie Française. So he has this persona of an unstoppable and indestructible life force, the force qui va, the force on the move, to quote the line from his 1830 play Hernani, this romantic, or this incarnation of a sort of romantic vigour that will not let up until France has reached its republican destination, and even then will will carry out checks on France, as he does when he criticises the French government for its handling of the commune. So he, he criticises the commune for its violence, but at the same time is then going to offer amnesty to the communards and criticise the Versailles government for its brutality. So this is a man who, he, he doesn't believe in partisan politics. He believes in politics being governed by the conscience and by a sense of morality. And of course, this just enhances that reputation he has in the eyes of the French at this stage. And he remains dualistic to the end because when he dies in 1885, he has one of the biggest state funerals in French history, but he's transferred to the Pontillon in a in a pauper's hearse, which is, you think is more than just a theatrical gesture? I think it is. I think, I mean, the theatrics we can't look past. Hugo knew what he's doing. He knew, he had no hand, to the best of my knowledge and understanding, he had no hand in the planning of the ceremony because this was a ceremony that was voted on after Hugo had died. The Third Republic were very keen to use any means they could to bring the country together. This is the period in which, of course, we see the 14th of July become a national holiday, a moment of reconciliation where you can bring France's different streaks into one creed. Hugo is a, is a uniting figure, except arguably for those on the on the, the right, not least the Catholics uh, and uh, the fact that he would, he would refuse last rites on his deathbed. He wanted no part of what he saw as a, as a false religion. He believed in a deeper spirituality. So when he dies, the only say he has in that in his will, he wanted a pauper's hearse. And he would have known, given that for his on for one of his birthdays, as he's about to turn 80, the French uh, government organised this huge public procession in Paris. So he knew that when he died, he was going to get something similar. And yes, there is a theatrical element to having in the middle of all this pomp and circumstance that makes headlines around the world with you know, two million people on the streets of Paris. There's this pauper's hearse being dragged along, followed by about 150,000 mourners as part of the official funeral procession. But yes, there's an oxymoron there. Um, and that oxymoron equality is... is it's key to Hugo's whole philosophy of the world. You have the majestic, but at the same time, you have something very grounded and simple and humble. And if nothing else, Hugo, I think, wanted his life to end with that overriding 
sense of humility that as great as he may have been perceived and as lauded as he would have been by the Third Republic and held up as this national icon, that there was still a humility that was necessary to all of us, no matter how how small and inconsequential or how great and influential we may believe ourselves to be or how history may perceive us. So this is what we see in Les Miserables, of course, that it's Napoleon's downfall that coincides with Valjean's liberation from prison. The time of the so-called greats is done. The time of the everyman is upon us. So for his funeral, it made perfect sense. And I think this is why it's more than theatrics. It's not just him mocking or parodying the sort of political expediency of various regimes. I think he's also sending a, a final message. It's a last gesture from this master of, of romantic melodrama. I was talking to Bradley Stevens about his new biography of Victor Hugo in Reaction Books' Critical Lives series. It's available now in paperback, and you can find out more about it on Reaction Books' website. The Critical Live series is full of enticing titles, and I hope to feature some more of their authors on the programme in the future. You'll find 50 other interviews in this series at thehedgehogandthefox.com, or you can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.